on May 23rd. I want to go back to normal. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves and demons. And now what? A baby antichrist? Okie dokie. Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop. Make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil. The final season. Streaming May 23rd. Only on Paramount+. Plus. What's up? Welcome to Barton and Bud. I am Barton. Barton Simmons. He is Bud. Bud Elliott. And we're excited to get away from the, the stresses and anxiety of the real world right now and talk college football and college football recruiting. We know it's crazy times uh, and, and our thoughts are with everyone struggling out there right now, whatever you are struggling with. Uh, and we hope that uh, you can get away a little bit and, uh, and, and, and let college football uh, kind of get your mind off things. Bud. How are things going? Going well, man. I, obviously, like, like you said, our, our thoughts are with everybody, and uh, you know, we, we hope, hope we all get through this and, and we come out of it for the better. Also, going well. The podcast is going pretty well. Three hundred twenty-eight five-star ratings now. Got a lot of lot of new questions. Numbers have been good. We we continue to grow every month, which is awesome, especially as y'all start to go back to work and you're listening to us on your commute. And we have a, a pretty good show for everybody today. Uh, quick and up quickly an update here. 950 commits, man, so far. That is, uh, that's a lot. Last year at this time, 405. 950, 405. Yeah. Yeah. So we're about, so we're, we're, we're about to hit like the point where the, the there's just only, there's only, there's a finite number of commitments available in the class. <laughs> and so at some point, this has to, this has to taper down a little bit, but, you know, June was a big month in the 2019 that a bunch of commits come in. It typically is when a lot, typically a lot of these recruiting events are held. Coaches start pushing for commits. Guys go to camp. So I would imagine the same, the same sort of mentality from college coaches is there in terms of pushing for commits. And I imagine a lot still keep rolling in. But June might be where, where things start to peak a little bit because at some point – you know, the things have to come back down to earth and, uh, you know, the, the, the classes start to fill up. I mean, shoot, Tennessee's got like 25 commits right now and they feel like they're still, they're still like pushing the, the pedal to the floor. So here's a question. Will, will any team reach 30 plus verbal commits at one time this year? Because I was going back and I was working on a project this morning on Ohio State's recruiting class. Like if they just stopped right now where would their class rate all time? And they actually, if they did, they basically average like two, like a, a final ranking of two and a half in the team recruiting rankings. If Ohio State just said, now we're good, we're done for the rest of the year, we'll take our 301 points and, and go home. But I was looking, man, we, we got some years, like Miami had a year where they signed 32 kids. Bama signed 32 kids. I, I think Ole Miss with like Houston, Houston Nuts signed like 36, 37 one year. This used to be a thing. There's a rule for how many you can sign out, but there's no rule for how many verbal commits you can have at any one time. So I'm going to ask you: Do you think will anybody school out there will hit 30, you know, verbal commits at one point? Hell, Tennessee may hit 30 by the time this pod's over. I mean, at the rate right they're going, uh, yeah, I think uh, this might be the year. This might be because um, <clears throat> it's. I mean, you're 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 basically if you do hit 30 commits, you're basically acknowledging 
some of you guys ain't going to be here in a couple of weeks. Like, look around the room. If you haven't talked to the coach in a while, it's probably you. Uh, so it, it, that I think this could be a year where that happens. Because, look, we're going to have a lot of turnover. But there's probably some, some a lot of coaches that are accounting for turnover. There's probably some kids that they might even see the writing on the wall and understand, like, okay, we had them committed in September – or, I'm sorry, in, in April. But September's here. Travel restrictions have been lifted. He's taking visits all over the place. He hadn't returned my calls. Uh, let's go ahead and take the backup plan and, and wait and get that commitment going, decommitment going. So, uh, yeah, this, I mean, there's going to be all kinds of storylines in the decommitment cycle this, this year. I'm all about it. So we'll talk recruiting a little more later in the show. But first, I want to get to a cool topic that you brought up. And, and I was like, yeah, let's, let's jump on this. Let's do it. What schools do we think are best equipped to sort of weather the the quarantine offseason and actually come out and maybe be a little bit better than they're expected to be because of the factors that might make a team good at a quarantine offseason or at least not as negatively impacted? I don't know if everybody's good yeah. at it, but I think there are some schools that are less negatively impacted at, uh, about it than other schools are. And so let, let's go ahead and, and, and jump into that here. It's a fascinating concept that I know you you did a lot of work on this coming up with sort of criteria that might make a school good and then once we lay out those criteria uh, we can go ahead and talk about some schools that we think really fit so the the, the criteria that I I established and this is sort of a working list so may, maybe there's some things that that you add maybe there's some things that as we talk through this we come up with that that is, is different but like my, my sort of tent poles for the criteria are experienced roster returning, uh, you know, basically a roster that can self police, uh, that can, can sort of keep itself in check, um, has the, the, you know, to have an identity, they know who their leaders are, they, they, you know, th those sort of things I think are important in this sort of a, a setting because, you know, think about it, like spring practice, spring conditioning, that's when, the 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 new leaders emerge. That that's when new faces step to the forefront and and push teammates and and keep guys on task. And when you're not around each other, it's just that's harder to develop that sort of identity leadership. So I think if you got experience returning on the roster, <clears throat> that's critical. I think the an obvious one here is just you know was is there a coaching change or a, a, an administration change? Like, I don't even necessarily count, like, for instance, um, you know, Memphis lost Mike Norvell, but they promoted Ryan Silverfield. We're, talk we're talking strictly about Power Five in this conversation, but, like, that, that to me isn't necessarily a big negative on Memphis because the same – there's continuity sort of in the regime. So sure. continuity, con so continuity in, the, in, in the regime at the head coach position. And then schematic, like, there's, there's – Offensive scheme, defensive scheme. Um, you know, that can mean, you know, Mike Gundy has a new offensive coordinator, but I think his scheme is going to be the same. It's still, it, the, the, that's not going to change. Um, defensive coordinator change, uh, defensive scheme change, whatever the case may be, like that's obviously a little less time to at least put that into practice in the spring and in seven on sevens and things like that. Uh, I know they're doing the Zoom meetings, but, but that's, that's still, has its limitations the quarterback position and you sort of uh 
I, I, I don't know how much you're on board with the quarterback position. I think it's partially like in, in just in terms of, of teams returning a quarterback in, in standard years. Uh, you know, you kind of made a point when we were talking in Slack that like that's less important than maybe some other areas than, than people realize. I, I would argue maybe, and I could be wrong here, but maybe the quarterback position this cycle is a little bit amplified because of, again, the idea of having your leader in place, having your sort of offensive general there that is, is you know, that everyone can point to, have confidence in, knows who they are. Um, and then those are sort of the, the primary ones. And then with those sort of in place, as you sort of weed out who, who, who checks all those boxes, I think then you can get into some things like how much spring practice did they have? What is the, what is the, uh, dynamic in the state where they reside, where the school is, <clears throat> in terms of their access to workout facilities and access to the the players and things of that nature, and then you could even extend it beyond that um, to to some other sort of more minutia, which I think is a little harder to to sort of grasp. But that those were sort of the the primary sticking points for me. Is there anything you would kind of add to that grocery list? You know, I, I not really. I, I think you you pretty much nailed it. Um, the one I mean, thing I think the one thing you mentioned in, in Slack, which I, I started to sort of again, I used to sort of weed out a couple of the the top contenders is not just returning production, but returning offensive production. Yeah. So yeah, th- this is something that I I've been thinking about a lot. I actually I just sort of upon the idea like. I think it's harder and to, to get the offense going than it is the defense going relative to talent, right? Defense, I'm not going to say that it's not a team game, obviously, because I do believe it's a team game, but it's not quite as much of like an interrelated team game as offense is. Off, offense is a little more chemistry based. Defense is a little more effort, you know, pursuit based. And I, I think that is often why we see defenses be far ahead of offenses in the spring and also in in early games in the fall. I mean, look back at at Florida and Miami to open the year last year. Now, Miami's offense never really got going. Florida's actually turned into a, a pretty quality offense, but they both look like crap on, on opening night. And that's often the case when we see those games, especially those Labor Day games. Schools just have not had enough reps, even with a normal summer, even with spring practice, even with, with, with your fall camp. They just have not had enough chemistry and reps together to, to get going. So I, I do feel like if you're trying to break in a new offense this year, if you have a lot of new pieces on offense, I'm probably going to downgrade you. I haven't really figured out how much yet. Or if you have a lot of returning pieces on offense, I'm probably going to excuse if your almost entire defense is, is gone. I, I'm going to put a lot of faith in the returning production on offense, assuming that it was actually, you know, quality players. If you sucked last year and everybody's back, it's like, okay, well, I mean, Great, you have continuity of suckage, I guess. But um, I, I think that's that's going to matter. And I have some teams who actually maybe don't fit all the criteria that you have, uh, but I'm still going to kind of kind of stump for them anyway, just because I feel like they return so much on offense and, and, and should be pretty good there. All right. So where should we start here? Should we start? Let me start at the at the, at the bottom. Let me get oh, you the, the teams, teams that the just, teams that are real that just don't. Just don't check any boxes. Yeah, yeah, we can. All right. So here, here's a few of them at the at the very bottom of the list here. Um, Vanderbilt, 
Returning production, 71st in the country. The returning production, we used Bill Conley's, or I did. I assume you did too, but I did. I used yep. Bill Conley's uh, returning production uh, that he put puts on ESPN. Um, and Vanderbilt returned 71, is, is 71st in the country uh, among FBS programs in returning production. That's not terrible. Below average, but not terrible. Um, and they do return their head coach. But they have a new offensive coordinator a new defensive coordinator, a quarterback that that wasn't on the roster last year. We don't even know who the starting quarterback will be because he wasn't on the roster last year and and is one of like four guys. And and by the way, the offense is like a total shift in like philosophy. Like just just philosophically it's just a totally different deal. And then the other thing that, that I forgot to mention up front is I talk about just just culture, just how strong is the culture, which is the, obviously the most subjective, but I think just in terms of like the teams that just you you can just count on from a consistency standpoint that that have some some sort of fabric to them that that is you know you sort of can count on it year in year out. I think that's going to be a big benefit in this this cycle. Um, and Vanderbilt, I don't know you can say that about Vanderbilt because there's been tons of turnover in their coaching staff consistently. Uh, and I'm not – like, they, there's there's no issues off the field there. But, you know, I don't know that you can sort of give them that checkbox either. The other ones are all new coaches. Washington State, again, totally a new system and doesn't check any of the other boxes, inc- probably including the culture. We can talk about that one for my <laughs> – they're getting in fights before bowl games last year. Like, I don't, I don't know if we're, you know, if we can really give them a checkbox there either. Um, I'm sorry, that was Mississippi State. Uh, Washington State is, it, you, we might be able to say they have a good culture, but they've, you know, new, new system, new coach, 85th in returning production. Uh, Mississippi State was, was, was the other one I was talking about. Uh, again, air raid system being implemented. Colorado, they got hired extremely late. No spring practice. You know, barely hired a staff in time before the black the the, the pandemic, and then Michigan State, who's 117th in the country in returning production, and doesn't check any of the boxes with the like would typically check the the culture box with Mark D'Antonio there, but I don't know that you can give them that that check box with a new coaching staff in place. Like, what does that even mean? So, th- those five are in bad shape in terms of just in terms of like what you would expect them to do based on, you know, what their, our, our standard expectation would be and, and how it changes given the pandemic circumstances. So I, I agree with all those. Um, I'm actually going to hit you with, with two more stats on Vanderbilt and we're not trying to pile on Vanderbilt. I know we've basically already fired Derek Mason on, on this show. Cause we, we did the, you know, the segment last week about like who should be Vanderbilt's coach if they're going to have success. And it's, it's not Derek Mason. Uh, and I, I am somewhat convinced that some of these defensive head coaches are just – they're not able to coach a team as a head coach that fosters a, a quality offense. I don't know if it's it's the way that they run practice. I don't know if it's that they keep their thumb on their offensive coordinator. But there are some guys who are defensive-minded head coaches. Just like I almost wonder if there's some offensive head coaches who just cannot field a good defense. Maybe it's how they run their practice or, or whatever. And I think there's two in the SC East, right? Will Muschamp. It seems incapable of having good offenses, almost no matter which coordinators he hires. Derek Mason, 
their average finish in offensive SP plus after six seasons is 81st. Like that's not even in the power five. Like they 81st is horrendous for, for, for an SEC team to be finishing 81st consistently on offense. Um, now here's the other thing. You mentioned that they are what 71st in returning production. Did you did you peep where they are in returning offensive well, production? I, I knew so I no, I didn't, but I do I am aware. Like when I looked at that number, I was thinking like the defense has got a lot of guys coming back. Defense could be decent, but where are they at offense? 122nd. Yeah. Yeah. That's a bad that's a bad balance in this in these times. So I've got some other ones for you here. Um obviously Colorado was was like a glaring like red flag news. Like, oh God, this right. is bad. Uh Missouri, right. 111th in returning offensive production. Coaching change, new quarterback, a lot of stuff going on there. Uh, Michigan is actually 119th. I'm not quite as worried about them because I think they check a lot of other boxes, you know, for me. Right. Uh, Oregon is 124th in returning offensive production. Now, maybe some of the guys they lost weren't uh, – Justin Herbert was obviously very good, but maybe some of the receivers they lost were not that good. I don't think the receivers really scared anybody last year over the recent years. And then there's a team who had a pretty good season last year, LSU. 128th in returning offensive production, which is going to happen when you lose like every single person you have to the NFL draft. But like they, Oregon and LSU, they have new offensive coordinators, right? Because Arroyo went to what UNLV, mm-hmm. and uh, Brady's with, with with the Panthers now. Now, granted, LSU does they have the same offensive coordinator, sure, that's right. But you can't. You, I don't think you can just sort of brush off the departure of Joe Brady, considering. The impact he had on that offense, um, but but Bo Pelini, new defense coordinator, is going to bring in a new scheme for LSU. And I do think like, and then keep in mind, so it's not as if in in us bringing up LSU, we think that LSU is going to be bad in the you know relative to the to college football nationally. The but the idea here is like, look, if you think LSU, this LSU team in a just a standard off season is 11 and one. Well, given that LSU has like new schematic issues to deal with offensively and defensively, new quarterback loses tons of production and will have sort of a, you know, a a a harder time building the, the, the cohesiveness and and leadership that they would have typically built in a typical off season. Like what do you what do you dock them? Like the idea is like maybe that instead of eleven and one, they're ten and two or or nine and three. Maybe instead of ten and two, they're nine and three or eight and four. Like I don't know. I'm just saying like that. The this this exercise is is sort of about uh, adjusting from what your typical expectation is going to be for a team. So uh, you know if I think most of our listeners are going to be of the of the gamble from the gambling tribe and. This will be the type of thing I think you you, you may want to just factor into your your season win totals uh, bets uh, once we go through this. I, I think you I think you have to. Uh, and in fact, I think that a lot of the a lot of the lines that have already been out there that we're not allowed to reference due to our our corporate relationships have already been uh, shifting quite a bit, probably because some betters are, are already factoring these in. Um, let's go ahead and shift here. Uh, speaking of shifts, for some teams that maybe have some some real red flags. Uh, in this category to some teams who maybe aren't going to be like national title contenders, possibly. Maybe they are. Uh, but some teams who probably are, are pretty well equipped 
to weather the storm for, for a variety of reasons. Okay, so <clears throat> I've got I've identified like my top two. Okay, um, and I may may work myself up to that. So here's here's the here's the top tier, um, excluding my top two. All right, my top tier. And let me know if any of these were schools that you identified to. All right, All right. I've got I've got Wisconsin, Kentucky, Penn State, Iowa State, Florida, and TCU. So. Basically, they're just, all those are just sort of rock solid, like same head coach, same offensive system, same defensive system, quarterback returning with experience and a strong culture. And TCU had the, the worst returning production of that group, 64th in the country, Florida not far ahead at 61st. Uh, Iowa State 52nd, Penn State 47th, Wisconsin 34th, Kentucky 25th. So all those, you know, not not like out the park in terms of returning production, but but no, again, no real issues there. Um, and so th- those are the schools that like consistently, I, I think based on the circumstances, there's a level of trust I have with with what they'll be able to, to put together in the offseason. I, so I have a couple of those. I, I think Florida makes a lot of sense. Uh, Penn State, certainly. Um, I mean, two really good head coaches, I, I think, in Florida and Penn State. Wisconsin, the same. And I'm, I'm fairly bullish on, on, on TCU. I'm, I'm kind of driving this TCU bandwagon this year. Uh, I, I didn't have Iowa State. I don't really know why I didn't. I mean, I'm, I'm looking through, you know, sort of what I was doing here. And uh, I maybe I should have had Iowa State. So they, Iowa State, like fit. The- yeah. Yeah. The argument there, you know, like they've Matt Campbell's built a strong culture. They're consistent. You know, they're not, they haven't had their breakthrough year yet, but they right off the jump have been like an eight win ish team under Matt Campbell. And they have Brock Purdy coming back. They have, uh, <clears throat> they have a, a lot returning um, and they've got, you know, pretty rock solid coordinators and coaching and a coaching staff. So they're, again, it's more about finding teams that don't have that like, that, that glaring weakness. And these are the teams that just check all the boxes. So I have a couple that you didn't mention. I want to bounce them off. you kind of get your thoughts on them. So Cal, Nebraska, Northwestern and North Carolina. All right. Now, one of those teams had a really good offense last year. Two of those teams had a horrendous offense last year. And one of them had an offense that was, I would say, okay, but just not up, not up to standard. Like or, or not up to expectation, that would be Nebraska. But all four of those teams are in the top ten nationally in returning offensive production, and and there are some teams that I feel like have a good chance to steal some wins early this year uh, if they can get off to a good start, just just because of their ability to score points or or score more points than we think they otherwise might score uh, early in the year when, when some teams are struggling. We, we know Northwestern and Cal are going to play really good defense. Um, we don't know that Nebraska's going to play really good defense, but but I am I stupid for, for trusting Scott Frost, you think, to put up points here? Because I, I I think the guy can coach offense, and I think Adrian Martinez is going to have a bounce-back year there at, at Nebraska. And North Carolina could just come out the gate really hot. I, I think they have to worry about UCF getting them because UCF returns you know just about as much production as, as they do, and they have to go to Orlando, I believe, to play them. And I'm, I'm going to pick UCF in that game probably. but. Those are four teams that really kind of stand out to me. 
and also like Illinois and Minnesota, who return a ton on offense. Um, although I have some questions about Minnesota's defense, and the, the, those are, are, are the, the kind of six that really, really stood out to me. Yeah, um, so I've got sort of a tier two, a group of, of tier two teams that are just maybe missing one thing, and included in that group is uh, North Carolina, Illinois, Cal, and Nebraska. Okay. Um, so I, I'm with you on those. Like I think Nebraska is like they they as I went through the exercise, that was one of the teams that I didn't necessarily expect to to like see. Uh, and really, the from the the only thing that I don't have as a big check box for 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 Nebraska is is culture. And it's not that I think the culture is bad there. It's just that we're we're two years in. We don't really like we don't we can guess, and I would guess that the culture is strong there and that this is built to last and and you know things have taken hold but we don't really know two years haven't had had a bowl yet season yet you know we know what what scott frost can do at ucf but like it's just a question mark for me on that um the you know similarly the, the same thing with north carolina um you can if you make an assumption that north carolina is like really has a firm footing in terms of the way that locker room is built, the just the identity and the the culture that's that's in place and just whatever it's been 18 months since Mac Brown's been there, then yeah, they're they're a tier one group. Um so th- those are the two for sure that I'm I'm right there with. Um and and then I think the other one like the one that's that's really interesting to me that you mentioned I think Northwestern is 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 such a fit for this exercise, like in a subjective way. Like if, if we're just going purely by the book, they do have a new offensive coordinator. They do have a new quarterback. But the new quarterback is, is, is like a huge additive to, to what yeah. we – like they, they were horrible at quarterback last year, and they're getting a quarterback that is proven to be at the very least decent. The transfer from Indiana – Peyton Ramsey. Peyton Ramsey. Yeah. Uh, so they, so, and again, and again, you could also make, have like a huge uh, criticism towards what Northwestern's offense looked like last year due to Mick McCall, their offensive coordinator, who did a great job of getting the quarterbacks to the NFL, but did a terrible job of running an offense last year. And Michael Jakin, who's their new offensive coordinator, comes from BC. Yes, he doesn't have the, the spring to instill and install his system, but I, you know, I think we can probably safely assume that will be an upgrade from last year. So Northwestern doesn't sort of just fit in the, in, in like the, the model of, of what, of like the very analytical way to, to handle it. But in terms of just looking at the, the way this team can respond, I think is, is, is really encouraging, especially when you consider that, like, when you think about like a culture and a team that's just going to get the most out of its roster and, I mean, Pat Fitzgerald has is absolutely proven that 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 we can trust Northwestern in that regard. Do you? So my only real worries about Northwestern are, and I I like a lot of their coaching staff. I think that they have one of the best offensive line coaches in the game. My only real worry here is I do believe that the teams who are willing to sort of push the limits on what they did during coronavirus, right? Like the teams that are willing to send Apple watches to all their all their players and 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 have have the gall to tell us it's to study their sleep right and, and not their athletic performance and stuff like that 
you know, I think those teams will have an advantage. Northwestern, I think, has great culture. I think they have very smart kids. A lot of their kids actually have means, so I'm not really worried about them getting nutrition, right? Like a lot of their kids are probably not struggling to financially to get quality calories, which is another plus. But man, do I hear a lot of complaining about Northwestern's compliance people and how they are just super strict. And so if Northwestern were to underachieve relative to what we think they can do, it wouldn't surprise me if that's part of it. If it's like if, if Northwestern really did the nerd thing and they followed exactly by the book, you know, they, 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 they talk two hours to their kids per week and, and, and nothing more, you know, and they, they video recorded all their Zoom calls, their compliance, people could watch it, all that kind of stuff. That, that would be my one worry there with Northwestern. Now, with Cal, I think Cal actually could have a pretty good year. You, you remember they lost was Garbers, their quarterback, last year. And when Garbers went out, I mean, the backup couldn't play. He was – I forgot what game it was. It might have been um, – I, I forget who they were playing, but, like, it was just really obvious. Oh, gosh, like, this kid, the backup cannot play at all, and, and they're screwed. Do you worry about – where like their location and where most of their players live hurting Cal a little bit like that that's kind of one of the things here that they have so much returning production but yet California has been in shutdown mode for for a long time and they were shut down earlier than some other places too yeah yeah I don't know I don't know I don't I don't know because because I still obviously with I just don't know how uh not living in California I don't know how um how much of a faux pas, how taboo it is to be out on your high school field working out with your, you know, your, your teammates or something uh, on your own. <clears throat> I, I can certainly envision that, that happening. And I know the gyms, the LA fitness or whatever might, might've been closed, but you know, these guys typically find ways to get to, to some equipment. So I just don't, it's hard for me to know how locked down it has been. I'd be curious, you know, anyone that lives in California, what, like what the dynamic is like for, for people trying to get a workout in, but I think that's a, like, that's a fair thing to consider when we're going through this process is who is having an opportunity to, to get with their players. Who's having an opportunity to, uh, for their players to work out like Nebraska. That's another benefit to Nebraska. Nebraska has very little as a state. Uh, the COVID pandemic has, has not really impacted the state, the it's, you know, the Nebraska as a team has been able to, um, you know, get food to their players who are still on campus. And a lot of guys have remained on campus apparently. And so like, there's some, some little underlying benefits uh, that, that aren't quite as obvious that a lot of these schools are experiencing. And, and obviously conversely, some underlying, uh, you know, obstacles as well. Absolutely. Uh, so one other name we got to hit you with probably here, unless you have more. I got two. I still have my, my two, my, my number one and two seeds. Oh, okay. The whole deal. So uh, A&M? No, but they, A&M was in, that, they were in my second tier. Okay. A&M returns, like they're 16th in Bill Connolly's overall returning production. They're 17th in returning production on offense. We, we know the stats here, right? 19 returning starters, including quarterback Kellen Mond. They've recruited well. There's a good chance some of those returning starters aren't, don't even end up as starters because they're probably going to get beaten out by guys who are more talented, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, I, I don't fully trust them. Check an article out later this week on, uh, uh, on 24-7 Sports 
for, uh, for, for maybe why, right? I think they may be able to take the next step, but I, I have a little bit of doubt about AM. And yet, I mean, same offensive coordinator, same defensive coordinator, a ton of returning starters, all the money in the world. So there, there's no reason to think that, that, that their players don't have access to, you know, calories and, and, and equipment. They're in a, a red state, which didn't have the same lockdown stuff as maybe some of these states that we worry about. Uh, I mean, by your COVID checklist, is there anything they're missing? Yeah, so I, I held to, to get into the first tier. Because remember, like North Carolina checked all the boxes. Nebraska checked all the boxes. I, I didn't check the, the culture box. And again, it's not because I don't think they have strong cultures, but it's because to get into that top tier, I needed the I needed the like the culture to be a no doubt thing, like a thing that's a, a considered a strength. Like when I think about the consistency of Iowa State and Penn State and Wisconsin, like you know they have a strong culture. Like Kentucky, for them to to sort of cycle up in the SEC East and do it in the way they have with the the obstacles they face, you know they have a strong culture. Uh, Florida, Dan Mullen, and, and really just almost like, but just just consistently like that program is, is, is going to be ready for big games and TCU, you know, Gary Patterson has proven that over time that they've got a strong culture. So again, it's, it's, it's not a no, like the, the, there's no, it's not the Texas M doesn't have a strong culture. It's just that I don't know. What are we in year three of Jimbo Fisher? I don't know yet if I'm, if I'm at the point where I like trust it as a strength of the program. Well, yeah, maybe we'll find out this year, but you're right. They do check every other box. And so that was the only thing that just sort of gave me hesitation to put it in the top tier. That's fair. I mean, they, they took a little step back last year. The schedule was really crazy. One thing we do know, or well, no, maybe strong, but it is very difficult to imagine an easier schedule if the, for, for them in Jimbo's contract tenure, his tenure guaranteed deal, if the divisions don't change. Right, like you're not gonna draw. What do they get? Vanderbilt and South Carolina, I think it is this year from the East. I mean, that's that's the draw. That that's the one that you want. And LSU lost every single player in the starting lineup to the NFL. You know, Bama doesn't have Tua anymore. Auburn lost Derek Brown and Marlon Davidson and all those dudes to the league. Like, there's a. I, I don't want to say something stupid. It's going to become a soundbite here. But there is a chance. I'm not gonna say it's a great chance, but there's a chance that this is the best opportunity they get to win the SEC under Jimbo. Schedule wise, yeah, that's a that's a. I think that's an interesting and fair, like, take. Um, it's. I mean, look at it. Yeah, like they they check all the boxes in a non-COVID era, and they check the boxes even more so in a in a COVID era. And so, yeah, th- this has got to be a year where they hit. I mean, 16th in the country, and what what was their what's their offensive? Returning uh, 17. 17th. So like, you know, and, and defense has been, has been really steady since Mike Elko has arrived. Uh, there's, there's lots of like, I mean, A&M's, but this, this is, <laughs> if they don't, like, if they don't do it this year, that, that makes it even that much tougher to swallow because like A&M just seemingly just can't get over that hump. And now it's almost like, this has got to be the year they get over the hump. If they don't do it this year, some documentary crew is is going to gonna, gonna produce a really good documentary going down there and figuring out like why a school with this many resources and access to talent can't seem to get over the hump in a hundred years. Yeah. Um 
couple more that I wanted to throw out before we get to your tier ones. I don't, I'm pretty sure these will not be your, your, your tier ones. Uh, I, well, I think one might be USC obviously to me, but like they, they lack some culture stuff and, and there's right. some questions there, but like they could score on people early and often. I mean, I, I think like they might give Bama a little more run than Bama realizes. We'll, we'll see just, just because of, of when that game is played. Uh, I think Louisville with Scott Satterfield has really good culture. I mean, it, one year is maybe a little too short to totally evaluate that, but they're, they look pretty good to me. Um, and here's another one for you. How about Pitt? I trust Pat Narduzzi to have a, a, a good to very good defense. I Sometimes I, I think the, the, the coverages they play, maybe they don't have the back-end personnel to do it, and it's like, wait a second, man, like it's not Michigan State. Last year, their offense took a weird step back. They couldn't really run the ball as well. They had to throw it all the time with Kenny Pickett. This year, they, they return a lot more on offense. I think they'll be better on the offensive line. Uh, I was going through my ACC Coastal things, and I was surprised at how high I had Pitt. I, I think Pitt has a chance to be live in the Coastal. I'm not going to pick them, but I, I think that they have a, a shot, and they do return quite a bit on offense as well. So let's, let's get your thoughts on those and your, your, your tier ones. Yeah, I like so, – so my tier – so my tier, my tier ones – I'm sort of I'm, I'm I'm being a little bit confused in the way I'm addressing it. My tier ones are, are the Kentucky, Wisconsin, Penn State, Iowa State, Florida, TCU, and then there's two in that group that I haven't discussed yet that I think are maybe even just like one A. My my tier twos include I do have Pitt in there, I have uh, I have Texas A&M in there, I have Nebraska, Cal, Illinois, North Carolina. We've talked about. There's also Clemson, Ohio State, I have Indiana, Virginia Tech. Tennessee, Stanford, and you could make a case for Stanford in Tier 1 if you actually look at it. They're, they're 28th in returning production, turn their head coach, uh, same systems offensively and defensively. Quarterback Davis Mills returned, even though he was he kind of split time last year with an injured KJ Costello. The, the question to me is, like, is, the, is it still this, like, two years ago, the, the culture's a no-doubt thing there. I just don't know, like, I've got some identity issues with Stanford these days in terms of like what they want to be offensively and, and just sort of that's been a little bit harder for me to nail down for me to give them that tier one status. And then the last one I had was, was UCLA. Um, and again, the only thing missing there in terms of just the checklist is, I mean, that, that's, we haven't, Chip Kelly has not proven he's built a, a, a culture to last yet. Not, not saying he hadn't, but he hadn't proven it yet. So, but yes, I think Pitt, is, is absolutely like, you know, checks the boxes in a lot of ways. Um, and I've been very tempted because I, I think what they did last year in, in their offensive coordinator hire, uh, taking the, the former head coach at UMass, whose name I'm blanking on right Mark now. Mark Whipple. Whipple. Um, I think that, that, like that helped a lot. I think, you know, they, I think that was a, that was a negative for them prior to Whipple and I liked sort of what they looked like offensively, especially like you said, cause they couldn't really run the ball. So they, they kind of had to, to make do and defensively, this is like, we saw, finally saw a Pat Narduzzi defense started to come into its own last year and like look like a Pat Narduzzi defense. And they're loaded on the defensive line this year or they're deep, I should say yep. on the defensive line this year. And, and I think that's their, you know, defensively it'll be another good year. So I, I'm with you on Pitt as well. So here's my top two teams. From a and again, this is just in terms of like if, if you expect them to go seven and five, then maybe they'll go nine and three. Uh, but it's you mentioned one of them, Louisville 
and the other one's Oklahoma State. I'm just telling, hey, the like everything's aligning for Oklahoma State this year. That this is, well, I can't remember if I've talked about it with you on this pod, but there's a reason why Mike Gundy back in whenever it was April got on his, his press conference and started talking about how he needs his guys. He wants to get his back, guys back in May 1st. We did talk about this. Oh yeah. Okay. Like we, we, we said the real reason behind his comments yeah. is that he knows he's got something this year. Like, let's go. Oh, yeah. Like this is he's ninth in the country in returning production. That includes, you know, returning a quarter, a starting quarterback. That's 34th in the country in returning offensive production, which is pretty good. But fortunately, like that's not even really where they typically need the, the help, the defensive production is where they're like a top. I don't know if you got in front of you, but I think they're top twenty in defensive production returning. Yeah, uh, and they're uh, yeah, so they're ninth overall. They're thirty fourth in offensive production, so their defensive production is is rock solid. And if you give me thirty fourth in offensive production, and you give me a quarterback back, and is wait is Chuba gone? No, Chuba's back. No, Chuba's back. That's right. And and, and Tyler like Wallace Gundy? back. You got uh, the Dylan Stoner kid, I think, is back at receiver. Like they, they're they're loaded at the receiving position. Like they got a good got... transfer on the offensive line, Josh Sills from West Virginia, who, who was yep. an all conference guy at one point. They've got scheme continuity with they're losing an offensive coordinator, but it's still Gundy's system, uh, and they just promoted from within in terms of the next offensive coordinator up. Their defensive coordinator returns, Jim Knowles. So now he's had, a, I think, last year was his first year, I want to say, uh, and so now he's got sort of his feet under him there, uh, and. Again, you you can trust the culture there because because Oklahoma State is like consistently flirting with ten wins year in year out. It doesn't you kind of interchangeably speaking. So this is and they got a couple practices in spring practice that doesn't hurt. They didn't get them all in, but they got I think two or three maybe. Um, and so things are looking things are looking up. And then my my last one, which is another one that you actually mentioned, but Louisville they got. They're 13th in returning production. I think 20 something and uh, 21 in offensive production. They return the quarterback, turn their head coach, same, pretty much the same same coaching staff, top to bottom. Uh, so same scheme. Uh, and again, I know I've, I've I've sort of like not given early coaches the benefit of the doubt on on culture, but I feel like culture is just sort of. Scott Satterfield specialty. Like, yeah, they, they took a two and 10 team to eight wins. Like that's the idea like that for you to do that in the first year after those guys were so beaten down, like the buy-in is, is, is off the charts for you to like turn that team around like that. Like there's no one questioning anything in there. Like they're all on the same page. So I think you can give them the culture check. And, and then this is another team that I don't, I couldn't figure out how many spring practices they got in, but I think they got in a pretty like significant, meaningful chunk of spring practice before the quarantine. So there's a, there's a lot to like about Louisville heading into the year from a, from a pandemic era perspective. One that I am shocked you didn't have on your list here. And and I'm shocked because this is kind of your boy, like their, their, their head coach and, Indiana, man. Indiana, 11th in returning production. We, 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 we both like Tom Allen. You really like Tom Allen. I, I, if I'm, I'm pretty sure yeah, you're, you're the one I listened to the cover through. You love Tom Allen, right? Yes, yes. So they actually – you could make a case that they would be tier one based on the, the again, 
just analytical approach. The only thing keeping them, they had one thing keeping them out. Cause you're right. 11th in returning production, same head coach, uh, defensive continuity, uh, quarterback coming back. Who's a really good quarterback coming back. I think you can say the culture is really strong there. The only thing that kept them from being a t- tier one team for me is they did change offensive coordinators. Now, same system. So the continuity is the same. They just, they, they promoted from within. Nick Sheridan is, is their new offensive coordinator, but with it's a, he's a first time OC. He's really young. And, and you could make a case that their offensive coordinator last year, um, who just took the head coaching job at Fresno state was like a, a pretty significant difference maker on that team in terms of like the, like why they started to cycle up a little bit. So yes, there, there's a, there's a strong case to be made for Indiana. Um, and I, 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 I still like, if you're just, if I'm just blindly, like if you just got blindly, like you're not even going to tell me what the number is for their win total, but I just got to pick a side over or under I'm picking over for sure. Uh, they just didn't make my tier one. They made my tier two. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, when we are, we got some good mileage out of this topic, dude. We are like 45 minutes into this thing. I, I know we had to recut the intro twice, but this is great. Let's uh, let's take a quick break, and on the other side, after that marathon game, we will uh, we'll talk about some some kind of proposed rule changes in the COVID era that might be beneficial to some programs, at least on the recruiting side of things. So, so we'll talk about that on the other side. Jeremy Renner returns to Paramount Plus for a brand new season of the original hit series, Mayor of Kingstown. My job is to create a balance, avoid a war. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, co-creator of Yellowstone. There's some new players in town, and they brought the flag. And Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. I know it's always been a war zone, Mike, but this is next level. The mayor is back in business. Are you warning me? You're going to find out. Mayor of Kingstown. New season streaming June 2nd, exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. And that, now we're going to talk about some of these NCAA rule changes. And, and Bud, uh, I don't know, why don't you kick us off? Um, what direction do you think uh, – yeah, well, this isn't even about predicting where the NCAA is going to go. I think this is more about for us, like let's just talk about some of the areas maybe we think that they should go in terms of managing the calendar and the rules given the way things have just been flipped on their head in, in the time of the pandemic. Yeah, so the, there's been a lot of suggestions out there. Uh, obviously, it's something that we discuss internally a lot, like what, what we think the NCAA should do in the best interest of both both players and of schools. Uh, and I think there's some ones that really benefit both players and schools as long as you can do them safely, and I, I assume that you can. Uh, so typically in the recruiting calendar, the month of August is a dead period. Now. I don't want to address any kind of changes for June, July, because that's already been decided that it's going to be a dead period, which means no off-campus or on-campus visits, right, in, in, until the end of July. It's dead through July 31st by NCAA decree 
you know, for, for the whole COVID thing. But in the normal NCAA calendar, August is also a dead period. So we have lost the majority of March, right? All of April, all of May, all of June, all of July. I mean, you're talking about almost 150 days here of potential scouting, evaluation, relationship building, in, you know, in-person meeting, in-person coaching, camps, that, that type of stuff. We've lost all that. And my first suggestion would be, instead of having August be a dead period, I think it should be either an evaluation period or at the very least, a quiet period. So if it's a quiet period, you can't go to the, the, the prospect's high school, but he can come and see you and visit your campus. If it's an evaluation period, you can do both. He can come see you and you can go see him off campus. The counter to this might be like coaches say, hey, I'm, I'm really trying to coach my team. We only have six weeks to get ready for the season. I get that, but I, I don't think, especially if you go with the quiet period option, I really don't think it's going to be that big of a problem to have kids come and visit you during spring practice. In fact, I think most coaches would welcome it because they really want to see, hey, is this 6'1 guy we took? Is he, uh, is he really 6'1? I mean, we, 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 we did that Tinder swipe a long time ago, and, and you know, the, the, the date's a long time coming here. I want to see him roll onto the practice field and just have him stand over next to the, a couple of our other DBs and see how big he really is. Um, I don't really see a problem. That, that's, that's my first suggestion of, of what they should do because the rest of the calendar, to me, looks fine. August is a dead period, I think, is overkill. Yeah, I, I've, I have heard um, – I was talking to a coach maybe yesterday, and he was saying something to the effect of like, man, they like, they got to keep it a dead period in August because uh, we, we got we to get ready for the season. Like we, we've had no time to get ready for the season. Um, but I, I, I don't know whether he was dismissing the idea of a quiet period because that, to me, does make sense. Um, especially when you think of it not just in the, in, as it relates to the coaches, but as it relates to the prospects. You know, those guys, if, if they, I mean, look, I guess there's not going to be a ton of visits because they're in their practice as well. But if they could just even get on campus um, for a weekend or something and, and get around the coaches and, and, you know, tour the facilities, see the, see the, I mean, a lot of these guys are committed to schools they've never been to. Right. Um, and so, like I said, like there may not be a ton of travel opportunity in August as is, but if you can squeeze a little bit in, you know, that I think just educating the players on who, what they're signing up for is, is, is beneficial. Um, you know, the big one, I think that I'm, I'd be interested in, and I think, I just think it would be fun to have this added to college personnel departments in, in a more meaningful way. It's just the idea that an off the field guy, because I think this could be potentially be utilized, uh, like sort of made permanent, but, but designating an off field guy or two to just scouting. Like you can still have the same restrictions in terms of how much they go visit a school. Like they can only visit a school once a, Whatever the whatever the rule is, you can only visit school once a month or once in the once in the evaluation period. Uh, but have them be able to go out around the country while your coaching staff is still coaching, and and be your scout, be your be your regional scout, like an NFL personnel department, um, and and allow those directors of player personnel or those recruiting office personnel to be part of the process for you so that you can make up for all of that lost time in the spring and in the summer 
that you couldn't get eyes on guys. You couldn't evaluate. You couldn't get height weights. You couldn't get anything. And so uh, I think that could be could be beneficial. And and, he, and and like if it doesn't happen and if that doesn't happen, I think that there's probably a, a lot of value in a coaching staff just saying, you know what, we're going to coach a man down all year long. And, you know, we're just, what are we, the two, two years now where they've had 10 assistant coaches? I think just one year. Just one? Because before that, it was nine. And so yeah. just co- go back to however you operated when it was just nine and send a guy, send one of your coaches on the road so that you are making up a lot of lost ground in terms of whatever, whether it's relationships, whether it's discovery process, whether it's evaluation process, or the recruiting process, because there's a little bit of that you can do in there as well. But I think more from just a, an evaluation standpoint, that's critical to get coaches on the road, uh, even if you got to coach a man down at practice. And I'm going to let you let you all in here on a little secret. If what Barton is proposing doesn't happen, a lot of these schools are going to send that guy on the road. And once the compliance goes back inside because the practice is hot, that analyst who's just observing and helping to coach the coaches is all of a sudden going to maybe take a couple steps over and he's going to start coaching the players like that. That's what happens at most of the big schools. A lot of these schools kind of have that coaching staff and then they have their sort of shadow coaching staff. You know, if you've ever seen practice video, especially if you get it with audio, they have these analysts out there and they're not allowed to coach the players, but they literally coach the coaches in the drill. Like, Hey coach, I would tell 56, you know, to do that. And like, it's, it's really a charade. Um, but I, I also think, like, we, we know we have Chris Hummer coming out uh, later this week, I think early next week, one of the two, with, with something on, on minority hiring and allowing coaches to get on the road, I think, in, in this fashion, or especially inter-office personnel, could help to, to bring more minority hires into the actual coaching ranks because these guys are even more valuable because they have the on-the-road experience, which at times can be harder to do because you can't get it right now unless you're actually an on-field coach. So I actually, it could help uh, grow the game and make staffs more diverse. I, I just, that just popped in my head there thinking about what we have coming up, you know, this week. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up finally, just before we get off this, are you a move early signing period guy? So I'm a move early signing period guy in the, because like the reality is, so we have an early signing period where it's a couple years old and coaches have settled into it. And I've talked to a lot of coaches that are indifferent on whether or not there's an early signing period this year. Like they, they sort of like, look, it's what we've had. We'll stick with it. Like might as well. But a lot of those same coaches didn't want an early signing period to begin with. And I think the early signing period ultimately is not beneficial i guess it doesn't maximize the decision making process for the player and so given our current climate given how little the players are educated on where they're signing up for uh they're 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 making their decisions you're talking about schools making decisions based on limited information kids are making decisions based on more limited information than ever as well and so They've got fewer offers. They've got fewer opportunities. They've got fewer exposure to the, to the programs that they you know, potentially could, could be playing for. I, I just think if things open up in the fall, from a player's perspective, 
it makes sense to me to push the early signing period back, delay the process a little bit to let everyone on both sides collect more information. Uh, and I think that, look, the reality is a lot of schools will, would, would, would fight back on that because a lot of schools are going to have a chance to have historic recruiting classes given the circumstances. And a lot of schools are just doing, like, you think Ohio State wants an early signing period? No, they're about to have the best recruiting class of all time. Even though Ohio State, generally speaking, probably is in favor of, an, of, of one, one signing period because Ohio State's top of the food chain. Um, but does a program, does, does Stanford want, an, want to, to, put, to lay the early signing period this, this cycle? I'm, ta- I'm not asking anyone at Stanford, but I can't imagine that they wouldn't because Stanford has to recruit nationally to find guys that can get into school. And so in order to recruit nationally, you need more time and you need more opportunity to see these guys and more evaluation opportunity. And so I'm just more about like the idea that, you know, everyone, let's just, let's just allow everyone to make a more informed decision. Um, And it might sort of muck things up for a lot of teams and for a lot of programs. And I know that some kids would have to, sort of delay a signing longer than they want to because they're ready to get the process over with. But, you know, the best way to get the process over with is stop answering your phone and stop, you know, don't, don't tweet out <clears throat> that you got a new offer. Um, I, I just think the opportunity to have everyone be more informed would, would be to have a, a, just a one signing period in this one cycle. I, I'm right there with you. I, I think you just completely talked to me into it. If, if the way the NCAA said it was supposed to work is actually the way it worked, I would be very pro early signing period, right? And granted, like, look for our business, early signing period is is pretty awesome. We we get two bites at the apple, um, you know, as opposed to just one. So self interested here, yeah, of course we are. Uh, you mentioned, by the way, did you look at my drafts today for for stories coming up? Because I, I have a draft, literally something that I scheduled to be published on Sunday. Uh, title. Has the early early signing period hurt Stanford's recruiting? And I, I, I have these quotes from David Shaw in 2014. Shaw, quote, to ESPN, I might be alone in this. I think it's terrible. I think it's terrible. The reason for early signing period, in my opinion, is coaches don't like when, when kids commit and switch late. Uh, now, he, of course, admitted to being self-interested because Stanford oftentimes doesn't actually give kids admission until like January, February. So he goes, I'll be honest here, which is rare for, for, for a football coach in a setting like this. But we have a lot of kids that don't know if they're going to get into school until after that early signing day, Shaw said. So we're going to punish the academic schools just because coaches don't want a kid to switch their equipment. By the way, sneaky shade calling certain schools academic schools, which implies other other schools are not actually, you know, schools. But I I like that. Uh, there's And then he says, quote, that's a kid. He's referring to some guy they got. That's a kid uh, we would never have gotten because someone would have, have pressured him into forcing him to sign someplace because they say, you don't know if you're going to get into Stanford, so you got to go sign with us. And so I, I agree. I think a lot of these kids make poor decisions in the early signing period. Additionally, I, I'm of the opinion the only kids who should be signing in the early period are kids who enroll early, right? Like if, if you're that ready to make your decision, also be ready in, to enroll right then because so many of these kids get screwed over by these coaches leaving, you know? And that's something is probably a different topic for a different day, but I mean, how many of these guys got got totally crushed when when Mel Tucker jumps to call j- jumps to Michigan State? I mean, super late. That's I that's wonder. Crazy. If, I wonder if more kids 
I don't know. I wonder. I, I just wonder if it'll, more kids will normalize the idea of of staying committed, not taking visits, but just signing in February. Like just con- like not exploring your process, keeping the options open, but just literally making sure that your head coach is still there in February. Um, like that's that because you're right. Like that's what kids should do, but everyone's going through the process the first time. Exactly, <laughs> and so they don't know any better. Like they're. Yeah, like it's it's easy for them to be convinced that hey man, if you don't sign with us, how are we supposed to know? How are we supposed to know that you you're committed to us? Um, so it's it, you know it, it makes it a tricky tricky to navigate. Either that, or I I mean, there's pro and con on this too, and this is something we'll, we won't spend a ton of time on. But the old Paul Johnson thing, right? As soon as you're offered, you're, you're eligible to sign and lock yourself in. That would cut down on the schools who offer 450 kids in a cycle, right? They, they would be a lot more judicious with their offers. However, uh, a lot of these kids would similarly make bad decisions as soon as they got offered, right? And then can't get out of it because it, it's, it's binding both ways. So um, it, it would, it would make the, it would make the news of an offer dramatically different. Like, wow, man, we just sent him an LOI. Yeah. All right. What's I mean, like all about? you would be like, you would not have 950 commits right now. No, you'd have like maybe 200, 250, I think. And it would be, if they, if they were able to sign right on, right at the time they were offered, that would be interesting to see the, uh, the, the creative departments and, and recruiting offices and how they would publicize those signings too. It'd be a lot of, a lot of fanfare. Oh a lot, yeah, a lot, a lot of uh, yeah. I mean that 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 that'd be wide open, man. I actually have a proposal I want to talk about on on a future show, not the next show, but an upcoming show. I have a, a an NLI proposal that, like, under certain conditions, you get out of your NLI to to basically make early signing period still workable, uh, but also still give some freedoms to kids if coaches pull the kind of double cross on them. Uh, you want to wrap this one? Yeah, I think we I think we did all we could do there. Um, thanks for joining us. Stay safe out there, um, and uh, we'll be back with uh, with a mailbag next episode. Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation.